All right, we've talked about uh, courageous women in the Bible, in the Old Testament, um, and we talked about our tendency as human beings to appropriate our own culture into our understanding of the gospel and bring, so if you come from a very um, hierarchical culture where women are not treated well and you become a Christian, it's easy to bring that into your understanding of the gospel when it might not be the case. And so that we, I tried to have us understand the, the spectrum of positions about the role of men and women in families and in the church, as, with one extreme being egalitarianism, and beyond that is the uh, loss of all gender identity, and then the other side of the spectrum being complementarian view, which is that men and women are made differently to work together, but in different roles and in different ways, and that um, is a position that largely would describe where I'm at, but the um, but that can be gone too far and becomes oppressive or um, not fair, even just unjust. And so um, both have their tendencies. And so we looked at the scriptures for um, in, insights into these answers, and we wanted to make sure. And the most important part about this whole study is that we're learning how to study the Bible, not that we necessarily agree with all of the conclusions together, because some things are hard to understand. But one of the first things we need to remember is that the Bible sometimes describes things that is not the same as prescribing it. So just because Hagar was a slave to Sarah doesn't mean that that's the way it should be. And just because Abraham used Hagar as a surrogate uh, mother for a son to try to have a new inheritance doesn't mean that you should do that. And if you look at the storylines, just because... Jacob had four wives doesn't mean you should. So those are descriptions of what happened in the Bible. But the prescription is more direct, like in Genesis where it says a man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife. And so monogamy is God's plan. Polygamy is what happens uh, when people mess with God's plan. And so that's a description. We just need to understand that, that just because the Bible talks about something doesn't mean it endorses it. Um, the other thing in, in point B is that we need to figure out how to separate timeless principle versus a cultural reference. And point C being how do we uh, separate a timeless principle from a temporary provision, a temporary thing like the uh, sacrificial system was temporary between the time of Moses and the time of Jesus and, and stuff like that. Then we can also gain some knowledge by observing the early church, by watching how it works and seeing who does what. And so uh, you, there's a sec you can't be too strong there, but you can make some arguments from the fact that Paul highly regards women as co-laborers and co-workers with him in the ministry, and they have prominent roles, and they're named, and they, they make a difference. And so they aren't invisible at all. And, um, but we can also point out that the, the early church had its selected men for deacons and that the apostles were all men. And so there's, it's something to observe. Only to, you want to be careful to not argue from silence, but if there were a woman apostle, that would change a lot of perspectives in a hurry, right? So the, so the fact that there isn't, um, if there were, it would make... A different implication, I guess, is all I'm trying to say. Then the other thing I wanted us to just recognize that in the sphere of authority discussion, 
that it's wise to think that even if there are male-female complementarian kinds of rules or guidelines in the scripture about the home and about the church, that does not mean that it spills over into every other sphere of life. And so just because you and I might think that a, um, a woman should not have a certain role in the home doesn't mean that if a lady police officer pulls us over that we're supposed to rebel against her because she's a woman, not a man. That's not the same. And that if you have a female boss at work, that that doesn't mean that she's not worthy of your uh, service or that you shouldn't work hard for her, or that you should rebel against that. And so I do think that one of the things that um, chauvinistic men or oppressive men do is they bring biblical it might even be sort of right complementarian talk, like the man is supposed to be the head of the house, and they bring that into other spheres of life and oppress, and that, that's not a right thing to do. And so, um, so at least I want us to be aware of that part of the discussion. I'm just kind of giving us a review. Then we looked at a lot of references in the Bible, at least we referenced, we talked about them, we didn't look them in detail, but... Genesis, the created order, that man was created first, the woman was created out of his rib, he was, she was made especially for him as a helper, he was incomplete without her, um, a lot of interdependencies, Ephesians, the role of the husband and wife, the husband is supposed to lay down his wife, his life for his wife like Christ loved the church, and the wife is to submit herself to the husband um, as the church submits itself to Christ, and that's repeated in Colossians and First Peter 3, and um, you know, winning your husband through a good, if he's an unbeliever, through a clean life, a quiet life, not through pestering and nagging. And then uh, I can't remember Luke 2.36, what that one was about. Acts 18. These are just, I guess that might be Mary's song or Elizabeth's song. Acts 18 is the women who are prophesying that Paul is going to face um, persecution. So there's women prophetesses in the New Testament. Philippians 4.1 is uh, the Odia and Syntyche argument that Paul uh, begs that the people would help these two ladies who were important co-workers with him, that they would agree to, uh, to resolve their differences. And so it makes a big difference in the church. So those are there. And then the D there, 1 Timothy 3, I think is um, the requirements for an elder. And the whole passage about <clears throat> uh, anyone who desires to be an elder, I could be getting Titus mixed up here a little bit too, but anyone who desires to be an elder desires a good thing. And the elder or the deacon should be the husband of one wife and all these characteristics. And then it says, likewise, the, and then the word women, likewise, the women are to be um, temperate and controlled and do these things too. And so um, if you are egalitarian, you're going to translate that likewise the women deacons. If you're a complementarian, you could translate it, I'm not sure. And if you're a strong complementarian, you would say likewise the deacons' wives are supposed to be well qualified. And so a deacon is not allowed to serve if his wife is disqualifying him. And so that was the culture that I was brought up in, is that it referred to deacons' wives clearly. But the word there for women is the word for women. And so context is the only way you can <clears throat> translate. You don't know whether to translate wife or woman because there's not any difference in Greek between the word wife or woman.
so you can't tell. It's not clear. <clears throat> and again, it just illustrates that you bring your bias to the text. And then we, we, got, uh, <clears throat> we took a deep dive in 1 Corinthians 11 about women uh, having to wear head coverings in the church. And then 1 Corinthians 14, uh, women are not supposed to even speak in the church. And then the passage that we're going to look at tonight is 1 Timothy 2, where Paul restricts women from some kind of service, but Galatians 3.26 says there is no difference between male or female in Christ. And so those two verses, those two passages that I'm referring to there in point number F, are the two uh, flagship, um, if the... If they, uh, egalitarians were on one side, their banner would have Galatians 3, 26, Galatians, and the, the banner of the other team would be 2 Timothy 2. 2. So those are the two verses that are in most tension, and we're going to look at those in detail tonight. But before we do, I wanted to remind us of where we came to a conclusion on our study of the head covering. And remember, I asked you to view the whole thing as having layers that there is a principle that Paul seems to be teaching, if you just understand his words, that the husband is head of his wife. That the, whether the word head there means source, protector, or leader, or, or authority, all of those words, all of those meanings might actually apply. But the husband, there's something about the created order that's in the home that God designed. And it's an intentional thing. And those of us who are complementarian would celebrate the fact that the woman is not the same as the man, thankfully, and, and vice versa, and that there's a, an interchange. And somehow, the, when we do it right, when we're informed by the gospel, when a husband loves his wife like Jesus loves the church, and when his wife submits to him like Jesus submitted to the Father, even though she, he was totally equal to the Father, the wife is equal to the husband in value, worth, and gifts, but she submits for the sake of the mission. And so somehow when that happens, when a husband and wife do that, according to and as unto the Lord, trusting God's plan, that relationship shows the world what God is like, what the Trinity is like, mutually interdependent. Um, you, would, you would have to say that the members of the Trinity, if, the, if we really understand the word, I think we would say that the members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are complementarian in their roles. In their, they're equal, they're totally, intimately united, they glorify one another all the time, but the Father decrees, the Son does the work, and the Spirit enables new life. And so there's a role that's different. Okay, <clears throat> we... Um, so the first principle that Paul was teaching us is that there's something about husband and wife. The second layer was that you're supposed to, at least by implication, you're supposed to be able to tell the difference between a male and a female. And so if you were in an androgynous manner where you could, if you looked at a couple and you couldn't tell which one was the man or the woman, that would be a sign that they were not following Paul's instructions here. It would, somehow there's no distinction. But the third layer is that somehow this relationship between husband and wife needs to be demonstrated to the world, that somehow we're supposed to show that so that the world sees how the gospel works. And then fourthly, the layer, the fourth layer is that a head covering, a veil or a hat 
or at least long hair, is the sign that shows the difference. And so we discussed that these are the four layers of Paul's teaching. There is something about the role. There is something about the difference. We're supposed to show it to the world, and the way you show it is with a white veil with lace on the side and a ribbon ring. And, um, and so I said, where, where would we draw the line for where it changes from being a timeless principle to being complementarian? And some people would draw the line above the whole list and say everything is customary, that the whole relationship to husband and father is bound up in Paul's uh, chauvinistic background, and he didn't know better, and that if he was enlightened, he would never even said such things. That's where some people stand. Other people would go all so far and say none of it's cultural, none of it's customary, none of it's culturally bound, it all applies, and you have to wear a head covering. As a matter of fact, we got a box of them in the room in there, and if you come to church without one, you got to put one on. I draw the line between three and four, and I leave three up to the individual family and believer. I don't know how to show the world. And the reason I do that is because the sign of a head covering is kind of broken in our culture. I, I just don't think anybody understands. If, uh, if Tammy went with me to the store and she had uh, an Amish kind of veil on her, our, her head, people, and you ask people, what does that mean? Most of them would say, oh, they're Amish. He sure doesn't look like an Amish guy or whatever, you know, I don't have the chin strap beard. It's just a cultural, it's just a, it just means you're super conservative. It doesn't communicate the things that it did somehow in Paul's day. And so since this, it doesn't give us an excuse, but it's just to lament that our signs are broken. That's what happens with signs. They're language bound and people redefine things. I mean, it used to be when I was a little boy that a rainbow always meant a beautiful thing. It meant that God would never bring the earth a flood. And today, if I said, I got my rainbow-colored socks on, you would think, what's he saying? Because the world has changed, and, and the, the enemy has, has uh, captured a sign, and it's become confusing. The term evangelical used to mean something, and now it's fighting words in a lot of circles. It's just so confusing. It means the right thing, but you have to define it all the time. And so when people come to me with arguments, what do you think about this or that movement or this movement? The first thing you got to do is, what do you mean with your words? Because you, you're meaning completely different things than the people who originated those words or those labels or those titles. And it's super hard. And I think that's all part of um, a number of phenomena, right? The enemy is the author of chaos, and he loves to deceive, and he loves to cause confusion. So that's part of Satan's tactic is just make everything confusing. But I also think it's a side effect of having a world that's getting smaller and smaller and being, you know, language boundaries are, are less and less. And, and uh, we just, there's so many cultural voices. And I mean, when I went to school, it seemed like it was pretty simple how to draw, how to dress. You, you kind of either dressed with it or you dress in total rebellion. And everybody knew exactly what it was. Now there's 17 flavors of groups that a kid could be in. A goth group, a jock group, a, a polo group. I don't even know what they're all called. And I can't hardly keep it straight. And it's just 
but not anybody hardly even notices anymore. You know what I'm trying to say? It's like there's just so many. Is that only me or is it? I think it's, it's just it's so ambiguous. And so in some ways, it's kind of good because as believers, we can be a, a bright, clear light shining in the world. And it's more important what's in our heart than what's on our heads anyway. And so if somehow we could show the world through our words and through the truth, that would be the most effective thing. But anyway, so our church, our, our, the people who hang at our church here, we pretty much draw the line that the head covering is totally culturally bound and, the, and how you and I, and I as different families manifest to the world that we are trying to honor God's role is up to our own families. We have to do it. It does raise an interesting question, though. If a woman in our culture wanted to show the world that she did not respect her husband or want to yield to her authority, what would she do? What would a woman do? What could a woman do today to communicate, I am not playing that game? What would, what would be some of the things that she could do? Just a sec, I'm coming to you. Most likely she'd make a statement on Facebook. <laughs> but with words. I'd take off the wedding ring for one thing, yeah. get divorced, or I don't know that there would be an outward sign because there's a million different ways to look at signs. Some people that are married don't wear rings. Some wear rings and they're not officially married. They just live together. Our signs are confusing. I don't know that there is a sign other than words. And I would not want to encourage you to think about into brainstorm on such a topic, right? <clears throat> but the point is, is that even if we wanted to rebel today, it's not clear what the signs would be. I asked Tammy what she would do and, or what a wife could do, and, and one of the way would be to dress real provocatively. That would be really evidence that you don't care about your husband to start dressing like a harlot. Um, the other one would be to dress way frumpy, uh, to go androgynous. Maybe, you know, sweatpants and, and no makeup or hair done or whatever, you know, just go totally uh, like a college guy. Um, I don't know. Anyway, it's interesting to try to wrestle with. So that's where we ended up last time. And I wanted to, um, Larry Bishop and I listened to the same podcast, um, R.C. Sproul, and R.C. happened to be talking about this, and and he was talking about how to what the science of Bible study is and how to dif differentiate between cultural um, bound things and the timeless principles. And he laid down a pretty, really cool uh, four points that I thought were just worth talking about here. And so in answer to the question, how do you distinguish a timeless principle from a custom? We kind of did it by just feel and listening. But Paul, our, um, uh, R.C., gives us some good examples. So he first, his first one is, does the Bible have areas that are open to the distinction? In other words, is there anywhere in the Bible where the Bible itself recognizes that something is only true in a certain custom, in a certain cultural setting, 
and not true for everyone else. Because if the Bible doesn't do that, then it'd be hard for us to argue that it ever should be interpreted that way. But if the Bible itself can do it, would that not tell us that it's a valid way to look at, it's a key to understanding, right? And so one of the things is that the Bible makes it clear that language differs. Isn't it cool that the, the Bible is written in three different languages, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek? Is it Aramaic? Is that the, the Old Testament one? Part of Daniel is actually written in, written in both languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. And so the very fact that Jesus would speak in different languages kind of communicates that language isn't magic, right? The uh, Quran has to be read in Arabic or you're not reading it. They do not consider a translation of the Quran as God's word, as uh, Allah's word. And so, but the Bible recognizes that language differs and that dress can change and that monetary systems, this is cool too, the Bible makes it pretty clear that the same monetary system doesn't have to work in every place. So you and I don't have to tithe with denarius or whatever those other coins are in the Bible, shekels, right? And so that's evidence that God recognizes that cultures differ and shift, right? Another question to ask is, we need to allow for the fact that Christian distinctiveness could occur even in other cultural contexts. You see, one of the things that people do when they, they go to this Corinthians text or the First Timothy text that we're going to look at in a little bit is that they come and say, well, whatever's going on in Corinth has to be exactly what's going on in the church. But the point that the, what R.C. is making here is that even in Corinth, the church could have been countercultural to its culture. You follow? It's okay for the church to differ from the culture around it. And so just because there were things going on in Corinth doesn't mean that everything had to be exactly in step with what happened in the Christian church. So allow in your thinking that Christian distinctiveness occurs even in other cultural contexts. The way that Christians treat their women is actually quite a bit higher in value than the cultures from which the Bible come, right? Rome was horrible to women, and, um, and Jesus was kinder to women. The very fact that women were regarded as first witnesses of the resurrection is almost one of the strongest proofs of the truth of the resurrection story because if you were making it up, you would never, never, never pick an unreliable witness to be the witness, and it was established that women weren't even valid witnesses in court. And so the, um, the whole idea that the Bible is already distinctive in the first place. And then another principle that R.C. brings up is he says, pay attention to creation principles. When the text argues from creation, which is what Paul did a lot on the whole head covering thing, pay attention to that. Creation principles trump other cultural References. So if God says this is the way it was from the beginning, if the text says that, that's a really powerful argument for that being a timeless principle. And I think that's what we did with the Corinthians text. And then his fourth uh, principle is he said, practice humility. When we can't tell, it might be better to err on the side of conservatism. So I really have to grant that if we really couldn't tell about the hat thing, we should probably be willing to go along with the hat thing. 
because we can't tell. And so um, it's, a, it's a, in other words, don't push the text to get what you want. Be willing to submit, even if it's awkward. And so this is true large parts. This is especially true in our culture more and more, right? As the world becomes less and less Christian around us, we need to believe Jesus about sex before marriage, even though nobody else seems to give a rip at all, right? I know somebody who's engaged in the, uh, the fiancé, the, the man's parents are upset with him that they're not living together first. What are you doing? You need to live together and figure out what works, and he's not. And it's so weird, and, and our world is so off, and so we need to just obey Jesus even when it doesn't make sense compared to our world. And so when in doubt, don't trust your heart. Trust the Bible. And so that's a good that's a good distinction. And that's one of the reasons that R.C. Sproul's wife wore a hat most of his life. I don't know if that was all the way through, but his teachings span across 20, 30 years. And so I don't know if culture shifted so much under him. But when he first taught on that, he said, my wife and my daughter are the only ones in the church that do, but we're okay. And so he didn't judge anybody else. Anyway, interesting. Okay, so those are the layers, and we tried to apply those principles. And so now we're going to try to talk about the, the um, text, the two texts that are the flagships of egalitarianism and complementarianism. Are you okay? Are you with me still? I know there's a lot of raw data here, but you're, you're listening well so far. I don't think anybody's asleep. And so um, in Galatians 3, this is the egalitarian argument. And this is my argument. This is good, right? This is the Bible. We're not saying this doesn't, isn't valid. We're saying that this pushes for the idea that we're all the same. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's, Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So that is a strong statement, right? What it's saying is that there is no racial distinction because those were the two most distinct. In our culture, you'd say there's neither black nor white, right? But our, the differences between how we view black versus white, that difference pales in comparison to how people viewed the difference between Jew and Gentile. It was really a strong uh, racial thing. And so from, a, from their standpoint, if you were a Jew, you were a Jew. If you were not a Jew, that would be blacks and whites who are not Jews. We were more alike than the people who were in other words, they would lump all of us into the same category. And you could be a black Jew and be a Jew, but you still wouldn't be a Gentile anymore. I mean, that was the distinction. And what was particularly odd about that is that it was something you could, you could change, right? It wasn't just the skin. You could actually change and, and proselytize and become Jewish. Anyway, so there's neither a racial distinction nor an economic uh, status distinction, right? Slave nor free. So in Christ, there is the master and the slave are equal status before God on their knees. 
no difference, neither male nor female. So that's a really powerful statement. And those who would argue for egalitarianism would say that that means that in Christ, there isn't any reason to make a distinction. And so it would be just as wrong for you to say, oh, you can't be a pastor of our church because you're black and we're a white church. Or you can't be a pastor of our church because you, you come from a family that's a lower economic class. You need to be a, an aristocrat or a, some sort of a um, high-born uh, a class. You can't be a pastor. That's ridiculous, right? They would say it's just as ridiculous to say, oh, you can't be a pastor because you're a female and not a male. And so the Bible would say that. Um, that's, that's how they interpret that text. Okay? I think there's one more verse after. No, I guess not. So that's... So you have any thoughts or comments on that one? Um, I don't want to be stuck here too long. I just want you to know that that's a pretty powerful argument, right? And it is at least true, if I'm going to hold to my soft complementarian view, it is at least true that there is no difference in value or contribution or giftedness between male and female. Now, whether or not there still is a difference in role may be debatable. And so that's, so that's, um, this text doesn't specifically address roles. It addresses something else. I don't know what that else is other than like identity, value, worth. If we back up again in Christ, you're all children of God. We're part of the same family. We're clothed with Christ. So our relationship to Jesus, Jesus died just as much for women as he did for men. There was no greater or lesser sacrifice, no greater or lesser love for women than for men. And so we are totally souls, both 100% in God's image. And so in that sense, race doesn't make a difference in God's image. Status does not, neither does gender. So that's how I would interpret it is that. Um, let me read for us then the other side of the text. And I'm going to read the whole book of, excuse me, the whole chapters too, because the context is helpful. Sometimes when you jump right into the prohibition that Paul gives, it seems a little um, harshish. And so I want to give context. So Paul is writing to Timothy, and this is, uh, Timothy's a pastor. And so this is a, not a letter to a church as a whole. It's, it's a letter to a person, but it's part of the Bible, so it applies to all of us. He says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all goodness and godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and human beings, Christ Jesus himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So Paul's telling him again, there's one God, and Jesus is the only way, and he mediates for all people. He's a ransom for all people. Okay, And for this reason, for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. 
and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. I wonder why he, he goes and says, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. It's really a big deal, apparently, that his calling was from God. God made him an apostle, and, it's a, and he's a teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, so because of his calling, because of Jesus being the one mediator, he's got some therefores. Okay, so there's a whole flow of reasoning here. This is not isolated. He says, therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So now I hope that in your head all of those things we talked about the last 40 minutes Okay, which parts of this are custom? Which parts of this are culturally bound? Which parts of this are timeless and eternal? What, what are the principles? The fact that there's gold or pearls or expensive clothes doesn't mean that if a woman wears pearls that she's violating this. Right? He's trying to give examples of a value system. A woman would, would be modest in her dress. This is not to excuse men being lusting. Right, this is a whole as a side point here. Part of what people men have done in the Bible is make women guilty of all of their lust. And so, so uh, if I lust after you as a woman, then it's your fault because somehow you you dress provocatively or you looked at me in a provocative way. And that blame shifting is a, is abusive. I think that's wrong and unbiblical. I'm responsible for where my eyes go. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes. I'll not look at a woman with lust. I'm not going to do it. What does Jesus say? A man commits adultery when he looks at a woman in lust. And so the, this um, idea that we can blame shift to women, that they're responsible and that they have to be uh, totally, that they're always responsible with how they dress. For my behavior, my responses, that's abusive and wrong, I would argue. That does not change the fact, however, that a woman can dress provocatively and make it more difficult, right? There's, and a man could dress immodestly, I think, too. The point is, the problem is, um, just the way we're made, is women aren't necessarily, in general, uh, attracted to appearances in the same way that men are. It's true that there's pornography for women, and it's true that there's pornography for men. But even in the world of lost people, the ratios are way, way off, right? The men consume pornography at much larger rates than women do. It's a different, it's the way we're wired and the way we, because of the curse, men can objectify a woman in a different way than a woman can objectify a man. And so pornography works for men, and it's especially tragic because it's easier than real women, right? A real woman is complicated. A porn star is not. And so it's lazy and uh, lustful for a man to fall into pornography. So anyway, um, I'm distracted a little, but the point I'm trying to make is that 
there's something to be said here that women need to dress in a modest fashion, adorning themselves in a way that demonstrates worshiping God, not look at me. And so, truth be known, I guess a woman has more power to make people look at her than a man does. Is that fair to say? I don't know. A man could dress ridiculous and attract attention, but a woman could dress fashionably and attract attention and distract. And so Paul's just asking them to be modest in their thinking, decent in propriety. And, um, and that also, that's super culturally bound, right? What's modest in our culture depends on which decade we're in and which time of year we're in and all those things, right? I mean, modesty in Africa is different. And what would be totally inappropriate for me to wear um, here, I could wear there without being so weird and vice versa. And so uh, the definition of modest dress is culturally bound. And um, to make it not so, I think is wrong. All right, so this is the context that Paul then says, a woman, and so this is the flagship, right, of complementarian. This is the big banner. This is the hard one. A woman should learn in quietness and, in, and, and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So there's a lot of ding, 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 ding questions going on in there, right? What is he saying? And uh, I think next time we should dive into this verse without all the prelude and try to get a handle on it. But these verses are the most difficult on this topic. Um, let me just also say a couple other things. There is a passage in 1 Corinthians 14 that says a woman should be silent in church. But that verse moves around in the, trans in the manuscripts it doesn't always show up in the same spot in Corinthians in the, manu the original manuscript. So somebody moved it. In some of the copies, it's in a different place. So when you see a, te a technical manuscript-driven manuscript question mark, like you know, John 7 about the woman who's going to be stoned or the end of Mark, or there's a phrase in 1 John, there's three that testify in heaven, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, those things are all, they're all questionable because of manuscript problems. There's oddities about them. The one in 1 John is clearly as a side margin note in some manuscripts. And so somebody put that in as a teacher, and then it got copied into the text later in later copies. So the part in 1 Corinthians 14 about women being quiet in church is... It moves in some translation, in some manuscripts, it's in different places. It's in there, but it's in different places, which raises some reliability questions. If that was the case here, 
then I would catch my breath and say, maybe, maybe some chauvinistic scribe just couldn't skip this part, you know, or he, he wanted to add this. But in 1 Timothy, there is no such evidence whatsoever. There is no questions about this passage in 1 Timothy. So this one is harsher, if you want to say so, or more, more limiting than the text in 1 Corinthians 14. And even though the 1 Corinthians 14 one has some textual question marks. Um, I want to have you think about it and pray about it, but whatever you do or say, and this is where I wind up, Paul is restricting something. I don't know what it is for sure, but there's a restriction for something. There's a restriction somehow, somewhere. What does it mean to teach? What does it mean to assume authority over a man? I'm not as sure exactly what that means, but I do see Paul saying it's a restriction. We're not supposed to do it. And his arguments are from creation, not any cultural stuff. And so all of the other things we'd want to do to say, oh, Paul's just a bigot. Back in his day, you know, in Timothy's context in Ephesus, there were women prostitutes, and they, you know, they talked a lot, and so he was just trying to stop them, or they were particularly guilty of ecstatic speech. I mean, that's just a bunch of speculation. We don't know. And Paul's not arguing that way. He's arguing from something else. And the way he argues in this passage, Adam was not the one deceived. It was a woman who was deceived and became a sinner. That, man, that's a really, that's a, it sounds like he's saying the reason a woman can't be in authority is because she's more deceivable. And I want to say, how many wives have tried to save their husbands from stupid rackets? <laughs> you know, men are super deceivable, right? So it's not a blanket statement in every way but there's something there's something else so whatever whatever god means i'm taking this text from god and this whole part about women being saved through childbearing it doesn't mean that if you have babies you get saved if you don't have babies you don't it does not this is not being saved that way it means being, there's a lot of ways to be saved, right? You can get saved by 911, right? You get pulled out of a car that's on fire. And so the word saved doesn't always mean eternal salvation. It may be that they'll be saved from the pains of childbirth some to one, some extent. Or that maybe we're all saved because it was the seed of the woman who came. So I, there's a lot of things. These implication parts are hard to figure out. They're certainly hard sayings. But the point still remains is that there's this I do not permit phrase. And so he's, he's limiting something. What is it? And so we'll try to figure that out more next time. Okay, so Steve, we'll be looking forward to all of the notes that you bring. Any questions or comments? Is that okay? I hope so. I, I'm... Uh, it is not to say, because the same author is the one who just read, who we just read, there's neither male nor female. So Paul's not saying women aren't valuable or worthy. There's something going on in God's plan, some kind of response to Satan's attack 
some kind of protection for the body, some kind of overall for the sake of the mission, are some of us willing to take a role for the mission? That's the, those are the questions. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Help us to be good students of it. And may we learn how to understand. May we not bring our own familial or cultural biases, our own understanding. I, I have to admit, I am sure that I am twisted in my understanding of men and women's relationship because I'm a sinner too and I, I'm under the curse. And I have been influenced by a culture that objectifies women or otherwise idolizes them or somehow uh, mocks them. And so I know that I'm prone to not see the truth. And so we just ask that you would give us extra grace and wisdom as we think about it this week and as we come next time and discuss it. In Jesus' name.